This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. How is this different than Bible study? It is different than Bible study. I think what we are trying to do is give people the contours um, absolutely for the scripture, but from the, for the scripture from Genesis through Revelation, through the entirety of the story of um, God's kingdom at work in the world. And so um, a big focus of that is rooting our story in scripture, but also in the development of theology and doctrine and history throughout um, the ages since the canon is closed. But I think more than that, we're trying to help people find their own place in the story. So in order to find your own place in the story, you have to understand the story. You have to understand how the story has continued. And then you have to understand something about um, the world in which we live. And so we're trying to weave together um, all at one time, create kind of a braid of Christian story, Christian belief, and Christian formation. So I think that that adds some different emphasis and um, gives us space to discuss things that you wouldn't necessarily normally interact with on a, um, in your maybe average weekly Bible study. Yeah. Is that fair, Kyle? What would yeah, you think, add? No, I think that's really good. I mean, I think that, uh, and when you think about Bible study in particular, I think typically Bible, not always, I'm sure there are Bible studies that are structured differently, but typically I think when I'm talking to somebody in the global Western church and they're talking about Bible study, they end up talking about some sort of inductive method of studying scripture where the main focus is on, uh, an inductive study of the text and maybe some theological conclusions are reached as a part of the interpretation and maybe some formational directives are given as a part of the application, but really it's about a very close attention to the biblical text. And uh, what we're doing uh, wants to make the biblical text primary in the discovery process, but maybe puts more emphasis on reaching theological conclusions and Mm -hmm. how those two things together are going to spiritually form the life of a believer, uh, both individually and uh, corporately in the life of the church. So it is a little bit different in terms of how we think about maybe – we, we don't do a lot of deep dives on specific passages. Uh, we, we really are doing more meta work on scripture and then diving in uh, through maybe some anchor points over the course of the year. What were the primary symptoms that you saw in your congregations that led you to form this kind of teaching? Like pra- it could be very practical or just, mm-hmm. you know, the same ones. Nobody seems to know the Bible. Well, I think it was more than that. I think that what we found particularly, so just to kind of set the stage for you, Caroline and I have been working together for, I don't know, a while now, but we were kind of at the inception of this at another church where we helped build it. Uh, And then we've gone on to now do this between two partner churches, one where Caroline serves as a deacon and one where I serve as a pastor and we're we're in collaboration together. But when we were when we were initially building this out and even as we've imported it into the life of our churches, I think that one of the main symptoms, so to speak, that we were trying to address is just a bits and pieces, very fragmented approach to the overall story of scripture. Uh, and I would say along with that, a, a really grave theological malnourishment. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They're just, uh, and beyond that, a, 
a lack of any meaningful discipleship on theological methods specifically. Hmm. That uh, in many ways, what we're doing is uh, a year-long theological method program. That's what we're, I mean, like we do, we, we, we get to some theological conclusions that we think are really helpful for the life of the believer and the life of the church, but we're far less interested in helping like download like a theology into our people and far more interested in helping them learn how to think theologically. And that's really the program that we're running is kind of a, I don't know, it's cloak and dagger. It's like, would you like to learn more about God? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. I kind of feel like it's all fragmented. And we're like, great. We want to teach you how to learn about learning about God. Uh, (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Yeah, I think to put it in, in like lay terms, I... I think our churches were, or our church uh, that we were at together previously, um, I think that so much of our programming was characterized by people needing fish. They needed, they were consumers. And we wanted to create contributors and participants. And our people were so reliant on receiving fish from the church, which is great. The church ought to provide fish. Um, But what we're trying to do is teach people to fish because I think each of us had our own probably experiences with this. I know for me personally, growing up without any theological background, it wasn't until I went to seminary that I felt like I began to understand, as Kyle put it, a theological method or just understanding how to fish for my own self. And that just assuaged so many of my Christian formation and discipleship issues. And then I go into the church and realize, well, the whole church is characterized by these issues. The staff can't, you know, They can't attack all of this. What if we actually just formed our people to be able um, to fish or to be participants if if you don't like my fishing metaphor? Um, I think we just have a consumeristic mentality about church, and we're hoping that this will change that. Hmm. Okay, so now we have 20 more minutes where we just need to unpack what you guys have just said. First of, oh my goodness, so many, can, can you give me, or we can come back to it if you want to think about it a little bit, but like when you say think theologically, can you, I think most people either say like, yeah, I don't do theology, you know, and in academics, we like to say like, it, it, it doesn't matter. You are thinking theologically. The question is whether you're going to do it poorly or better. And I assume exactly. you're, you're training for better. Um, can you give me one example where you just see people repeatedly thinking poorly in their theology, you know, poorly forming their own theology where you come in and through helping them think about method help like an actual brass tacks? Because I think most people in the abstract, everybody will nod along to what you're saying, but uh, you don't have to name names. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, got to give us something here. Yeah. I I mean, gosh, there's so many. Um, uh, I would say, let's just, let's just start with an easy one that, you know, has always has a little bit of fire on it, which is like views of creation. Hmm. Most people learn, well, in evangelicalism, we have taught people if they have been taught how to think theologically, we've been, we've taught them to be defensive theologians, not constructive theologians. So like, we've taught them how to do theological defense here, download this lecture from, creation theologian a that's your view this is the christian view now pick up your sword and get ready to defend that view so we've effectively weaponized theological conclusions for defense in a either intra 
denominational defense or cultural defense or whatever. That's prop. I think that's generally unhealthy. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying it's totally purposeless because there are things that we need to defend, but if all people know how to do with their view of creation is defended against alternative views of creation, then we have not taught them a theological method that will help them learn how, how does my view of creation affect the way that I nurse? Okay. Can I, can I give an example here and see how this rings with it? Did you guys see this, the, uh, Dua Lipa, uh, Stephen Colbert? Yes. Okay. It was fantastic. Okay. Here's yes. Yay. Stephen Colbert. He lives just a few miles West of me. Right. Um, (laughs) Great, great guy. I'm glad to have uh, a faithful Catholic in public life like that who is uh, really standing up for Christianity uh, in a wholesome, winsome way. However, can, let me get my big butt here. Uh, his his positive, not a defensive Christianity, but his positive ast- affirmation of what he thought was important, I thought was what I would have expected kind of from a, you know, an intelligent high schooler uh, in the 1970s. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like a grandiose statement uh, of the Christian faith. It was a very basic, clear, articulate. Uh, comes from a deep well of, of experience, and so I, I like for for me, I the fact that everybody celebrated that so grandly. I thought, oh, is this where we're at? Where a guy just making what we consider a basic argument for the faith. Uh, is now the the watermark? Yeah, it's it's not where we're at. We're actually probably a thousand leagues below it. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think that when people when you start doing like ecclesial theology, and by that I mean theological the, the, theological reasoning and doing theological study in among with and for the people of a local embodied community of faith. That's what I mean by ecclesial theology. I mean, you're doing theological thinking with them. You're doing theological thinking from them. You're doing theological thinking to them. Uh, And I think that when that begins to happen, you realize, and this is not a slight on any individual. It's just a uh, depiction of just how theologically malnourished our local churches are. Mm. We typically have one sage theologian who occupies Mm -hmm. the pulpit and uh, you know the congregation, if they're respectful and reverent, stands in awe of the one wise theological voice and comes to them with all of their questions. Uh, and uh, listen, I have a high view of the pastoral office, but uh, that is uh, that's a problem. Um, that's a problem of just a disproportionate investment. Uh, and so I think that when you do think about how does this actually hit the ground, so to speak, how does theological method help? Well, I think it can help by helping people understand um, that what they believe to be true uh, is true and, and helping them see why uh, and that, that the truthfulness of it should change uh, some very ordinary aspects of their mm-hmm. life. And I think that it can change it for the better. Yeah. I think, okay, so going back to the Colbert interview, this is what I agree with you from the standpoint that um, it was a simple and perhaps even simplistic view of the Christian faith. But this is what I thought was so fantastic about it. I know very few Christians that can give a theology for comedy. And I think in order to be able to look at laughter and comedy and to anchor it in a larger Christian story is a skill that our churches have become completely anemic in. And that's what we see in our institute. We see that people, um, they can they can make grandiose statements about Christianity, 
but they cannot connect it to their everyday life. They cannot connect it to things that seem disparate, like comedy, for example. So mm. to Kyle's point about creation, you know, what we're trying to do is we want to give them um, an overview and an anchor point. So yes, of course, they can um, think through the defensive components of it. But as Kyle was saying, think constructively. And just in terms of like getting that on the ground, um, one of the things I would love to ingrain in our people is the cultural mandate and how we were created to participate in the kingdom of God. But I don't want that to be this ethereal idea. So we talk often about, particularly for me as a mother, my full-time job is taking care of three small children. And so anchoring the cultural mandate in making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every single day and remembering that even the people who first heard this um, kind of this calling to procreation and vocation, they too were also doing the everyday normal caring for people, caring for children, caring for elderly survival kind of things. And God sees all of that as being Hmm. um, ordained as part of his kingdom. And so helping people to connect those dots on very um, mundane everyday kind of things and, and connect the grandiose statement with also, Hey, this is, this is what I do every day. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, good comeback on the the, the theology of comedy. I think yeah, I think most people will flutter. My Jewish friends would have they could have nonstop so things to say about so theology true. of comedy. But um, and it, by the way, a plug We're too puritanical. You, yeah, if you haven't read um, Matthew Kamink's uh, work in worship, it's the best biblical theology of integration I've ever read in my life. Um, mm. Of the four I've read, <laughs> it's not like it's my area, but um, it's fantastic. Um, I, I do, I do wonder in my own head, uh, well, here, I want, actually want to go back to something that you said, Kyle, about, um, it's, I don't know if you were use the word dangerous, um, but I, let me use the word dangerous. Why is it dangerous to only have one expert of the text of hmm. biblical text and theology and Christian history in your church? Like what could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> Just right. so we can be clear. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> well, there's one, it's going to exacerbate, a expert amateur divide. Uh, so that, that is probably a problem. If one of the things that's valuable for the Christian life is to know God and you, you have a paid knower or an Mm. official knower among you, then, uh, you, you, you've kind of, uh, there can be a vicarious spirituality. That would be my first danger Mm. that you, you live through the theological conclusions of the pastor or whoever the spiritual leader is. And subsequently, everything they say is something that you experience vicariously and probably very, uh, uh, it's probably very, uh, ephemeral. Like mm-hmm. it just moves very quickly. The pastor says something grandiose about God. For a moment, your heart is struck and you're glad that someone believes it, mm. but you're not quite certain that you do. Um, and so I think that vicarious spirituality in terms of just injury to the believer and injury to the church would probably be my number one. The number two would be something like it's incredibly dangerous um, to uh, have one person be your measurement for truth or your barometer for what is true uh, because, wow, we're all very corruptible um, and uh, uh, failure uh, abounds and temptations to fail abound. And so if there's one knower who's told you that to know these things is to be transformed by them and you believe them, uh, you believe that they believe it, you're not sure you believe it, and no one else you know really lives that way. Uh, and then that person fails. Well, 
it now they've kind of been saddled now with the weight of your vicarious belief. Uh, and I think a lot of that right now is present in the deconstruction movement, um, of mm. which I'm highly sympathetic to, but you can see, I mean, when you get to the, when you actually get to the anecdotes among proponents of exvangelicalism or deconstructionism or whatever, really, when you get down to brass tacks with them, there was somebody who held forth to them things of the Lord, um, who occupied a position of leadership. Maybe they had never really been challenged to believe those things or to really think through them, but they knew they were a part of a community of faith where somebody believed them and they were willing to sit in that other person's belief. And when that other person failed, of which you know, failure abounds and who among us would not or could not fail, um, well, then the beliefs go down in a, you know, go down with the ship, so to speak. So right. I'd say those would be two really grave dangers, I think, to having that kind of uh, lopsidedness in the life of a local church. And in the worst case scenario, the ability of that person to then manipulate the people around them using the text and their knowledge of the text as a as a tool for manipulation as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think outside even of those worst case scenarios that you guys just presented, moral failure, manipulation, as someone who um, as a woman who has been in predominantly learning environments where it's been a man teaching, I think also we just uh, we disembody knowledge when we only have one one sage, one knower, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I don't think that the knowledge that the Bible is holding out has ever intended to be disembodied. It's, it's not only embodied, but it's also embedded in a cultural uh, community. And so um, it, we run the risk of holding out a way of knowing or a perspective of knowing that doesn't fit for everybody. And so then you, it's confusing for the congregation when you think this doesn't, this doesn't fit me. This doesn't fit my life. This doesn't fit my experience of it. And I'm having to, um, now I feel different or I, I feel mm -hmm. like I can't know because I have, I don't see a way of knowing that matches how I move in the world. So I think we, we privilege, we disembody, we disembed, and then we also um, privilege a particular way of knowing or perspective of knowing. That's, well That's why Kyle and I love doing this together. So we have balanced voices, vocational and lay, male and female, more systematic, to, more biblical studies. I need to drop a note in here to the listener that uh, she said all of that of her own free will. I did not pay her uh, you were almost <laughs> reading some pages out of my personal notes. So, uh, yeah, you were speaking well, I mean, my love a, language a really, there, Caroline. A really, a really simple example of this is um, uh, just because the listener might go, well, what do you mean? Like the text is the text. The truth is the truth. And it's like, mm -hmm. yes, the text is the text. And and we do believe in objective truth. So nobody, I don't think, I can't speak for Drew, I, uh, but I, I know for Caroline and I, we, we definitely believe there are some things that are true regardless of perspective. But there are times in which uh, like uh, <laughs> many, many pastors, particularly in our environments, uh, I would say um, almost wholly miss in biblical texts any time where physiological frailty would play into the interpretation of the text. Like, or, or physiological differentiation, maybe is a better way to say it. 
Like they they will not they'll they'll just zoom right past those opportunities to talk about it. They'll moralize it, they'll spiritualize it, or they will actually just walk right past anything where it might be like, huh, I wonder how this would have felt for that person in an environment in which their bodies might have been unsafe. Hmm. They'll like because for most men's lived experience. It's not something that they have to grapple with. Almost white uh, men. Or yeah, that's true. That's a good way to say it. I, I uh, disagree with you. And <laughs> here's why. I think actually okay. most men, including white men, as a as a 47 year old white man, I've been doing this white man thing for a long time. Mm. Um, is that actually men know exactly what it's like to feel uh, unsafe if they've played? You know, if you talk about sexual abuse uh, of of young men, it happens quite often for young men. Mm-hmm. Uh, sexual abuse in sports, spe- sexual abuse in the military. Right, right. It actually happens. They don't ever talk about it. Right, and that uh, and that, that may be that may be more along the lines of it's it's certainly culturally taboo to even admit something like right, that. Right, exactly. So there's a lot uh, you could tap into there if you wanted to. But it's Absolutely. not. It's not what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But but it has, in my experience, been the unique uh, feminine perspective of teaching that has been more readily willing to admit that and draw attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in a teaching environment where Caroline and I are teaching together, doing theological training for two churches of men and women, uh, of pockets of men and women. One of the things that is, I think, a really unique value there is that both are own backgrounds, our experiences, our education, and our embodiedness comes into play in a way that if it was just one of us teaching, it, it would not. Um, it would be more monodimensional, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it, it seems to me that wherever you don't have a uh, the teaching voice balanced, and I, and I mean balanced not just men and women, but balanced perspectively in lots of different ways, it's always going to be problematic. Uh, and, and that can be as much as reading, submitting to other perspectives from around the world yeah. as well. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so even yeah. we're, we're talking about the, you know, I live in the land of opulence here in, in Newark, New Jersey. I work in New York city. Every meal I've ever had is, you know, like I can pay for it. Like we're, we're not representing the majority of history or the majority right. of the world's experience. So we need them as well. Um, Sorry, I was is, just soapboxing there. No, 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 no. And that's true. And I would say right now, if if I was putting a uh, if I was if I was offering one good faith criticism of what Caroline and I are do, of which there would probably be many, because we're learning to do this, and maybe ten years from now we'll be doing it a lot better than we are now. Hopefully, it, I hope certainly. Um, it's that I do think that there is. Uh, a lack of a global perspective hmm. uh, yes. in what we've been able to do. Um, and that does feel like a, uh, uh, we've tried to supplement that with def- different reading and secondary literature uh, because the structure of our program is there's homework that includes secondary reading, lots of Bible reading assignments, hmm. those kinds of things. Um, and not just, it's not just lectures, a lot of discussions, it's an active learning environment. And Amen. Uh, so that secondary literature has been the way that we've tried to supplement it. But I'll tell you, I, I do feel like one of the, and this, this isn't necessarily true of, of theological education programs in the life of local churches. It's also true of a lot of our well-established seminaries is that yeah. any global perspective essentially gets relegated to like a history of religions or world religions, or if you've got a department that specializes in Islamic studies. Or like, theology. 
or missiology. There's yeah. very little like, huh, I wonder if South African theologians had to deal with reconciliation. <laughs> do you think do you think that maybe they have? Because uh, I bet they have. And maybe wonder- they could teach us something that we need to know. Yeah, again, I am not paying these people at all. We did a four-part series on re- reconciliation with global scholars involved okay. as well, so That's from great. Africa. That's great. But but uh, but for most, I think right now, um, at least a lot of the churches that I know that are doing this, if that's on their radar at all, they're having to supplement it yeah. from outside of the uh, outside of the confines of their church, which is uh, unfortunate, but it is where we are. So Caroline, as a lay person, which you're kind of not really a lay person, but we're going to pretend like you are. Yeah, lay-ish, lay-esque. Is this what you guys are doing with this institute where you gather people together in this year-long training program? Is this just alt seminary or is there a world in which if you had all these people, you you would ideally just send them to the seminary, but since you can't, you do this instead? Well, there's certainly a component of that. Um, I think that's very true for a lot of women who aren't, and this doesn't have to be only women. I guess that's probably me overly biasing my own perspective. Uh, But I think there's people who would like to go to seminary, but um, know that they're not likely to be vocational pastors on the other side. And so um, it's, it's hard to, you know, set aside that amount of time and money and all of that. But I think that's really a smaller subset of what we're doing. I think what we would like to do is create um, overall a uh, theological rigor and foundation in our churches um, for all all congregants, regardless of their um, vocation. In fact, I think in some ways, those who will never touch seminary are... Um, this is more important for them to to mm-hmm. have their vocation and their moving in the world, participation in the kingdom framed biblically um, instead of this kind of disjointed sense of, well, you know, that's for the professionals. I think we're trying to break down that uh, sacred secular divide or this sense of ministry as uh, professional. And I don't think seminary can, I think seminary can be a great place to form those who want to um do something sort of professional, be less lay-ish or, or maybe, yeah, be exactly lay-ish or, uh, or vocational. But I think that, um, I think that this view of the world, um, is deeply necessary for all Christians. I think, I mean, just as like a personal anecdote, I went to seminary on a whim, um, in 2010, someone said, Hey, I think you might like this. And, uh, the, my, I, was the, because of the recession i was my husband was traveling for work i my job got cut in funding so i had a bunch of free time so i said sure why not i'll go to seminary but i was sitting in seminary and i had no concept of what these people were talking about and i'd been a believer i mean really my entire life and i'd been in church my entire life i'd been heavily involved in ministry i had no framework whatsoever and that's that's concerning, you know. So at the very least, we're trying to create, give people some sort of theological framework for if they were to go to seminary or if they don't go to seminary, just to to live and move and be in the world um, as mature Christians. Yeah, do you do you guys in principle believe there there's some way in which what you're doing is better served within the church rather than going away Absolutely. to seminary? Okay. A hundred percent. Yeah. No hundred percent. I mean, Caroline and I have both had the opportunity to spend significant amount of time 
in seminary and we understand it's uh there is a value for the right person at the right time. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm I I will say I do think seminaries have overcommunicated their value. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh that's maybe a hot take but I think that they have become they they have attempted to become uh, a one-stop shop uh and they have uh they have uh, they doth protest too much possibly. <laughs> Um, I think that what they what they attempt to do in their best attempts can be done very faithfully in the life of a local church, and I think there are some elements of what uh, we're doing. We're certainly not like if you wanted to come to us to learn Greek and Hebrew, guess what? You're out of luck. We mm-hmm. don't do that, um, and uh, we we don't we're not attempting to do that. We we yeah. don't honestly have the subject matter expertise to do it. And I'm not saying Speak learning yourself. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, you, you, you could probably handle it. I, I myself could not, um, and, and make, uh, no pretense to my abilities in those areas. Um, uh, and I, I could say, I could say, Hey, for some people, man, that'd be really, really valuable to go and to spend some time learning the languages. But what we're able to do of having brothers and sisters in Christ that are a part of a local church together, being able to worship together on Sunday and to gather for theological formation and equipping that kind of embeddedness in a local community of faith. And then a partnership between two sister churches, those things create, um, opportunities for collaboration, for depth, for unity in the life of our city that bears witness, um, to the gospel and to the church of Christ in a unique way. And, um, yeah, I don't think you can export those things. And I don't think you can export the genuine creativity, the knowledge and the experience of believers, uh, that oftentimes is, uh, I think relegated to silence in traditional classrooms. Mm. I don't think you can, I don't think we would ever make an exchange for that. I, I really don't. Uh, and uh, there are some students that we send on to do seminary, and we we send them on gladly with hopes that they'll come back and invest in the life of their local church. Um, but uh, yeah, for a lot of our folks, it is uh, what we do in what we call the Forge program is terminal in the sense of this is probably the the most formal they will ever have mm. as far as theological education goes, and we hope that they'll use it effectively on the other side. I think also going back to um, the thing that you did not pay me to say about uh, being disembodied or uh, not wanting to disembody and disembed um, our Christian formation and knowledge, I think it's critical to making sure that our knowledge is holistic and well-rounded. Our By knowledge, I mean our knowing of God and um, being known by God. Because when we go, this is, uh, and I'm all in on academia. I am all in. I'm working on a PhD. I'm on a third degree. I've been in three different institutions with different confessional and non-confessional backgrounds. So I'm I'm all in. And I think that there is a lot of benefit um, within academia. I do agree with Kyle. I think seminaries have overstepped and or gotten out over their skis in some senses because the church wasn't doing it. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, there's a chicken and an egg. Maybe churches stopped doing it because the seminaries were. Maybe seminaries started to do it because the churches weren't. But we created this divide where there's, in some sense, it's like you go to seminary and you learn knowledge. Knowledge is cognitive. And then the church is where you practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that biblical knowledge and knowing God was ever intended to be so fragmented in that regard. So we're trying to unfragment it. Good. Well, this is great because um, we were going to have a seminary sponsor this episode, but I can just go ahead and cancel oh. that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I'm all in. Like I said, I'm I'm super pro. 
Um, so I can imagine right some person. pastors who are listening or people who are at a church who are listening to everything you're saying, and they are super excited and thinking, I want to do what Kyle and Caroline are doing. Um, what, what would you suggest first steps? I love this. Be, I love the find a sister church or find sister churches. It sounds like that would be key for what you're doing. Yeah, the partnership both creates sustainability because it's not just one of us. Because uh, not for neither one of us is this or could this be our full time job at mm. present. Um, and so, so I would say the partnership creates some sustainability. It also creates some good cross pollination. That yeah. our two churches share a lot in common, but they are not identical churches. Uh, and that cross pollination is really healthy. It's healthy for the people coming from the church that Caroline's at, which is Eastside Church. They're healthy from. The, it's healthy for the people coming from the church where I'm at, which is Mosaic Church. And so that uh, sustainable. It's cross pollinating. I would say if you're a pastor and you're listening to this or a leader in the life of your church and you're listening to this and you're thinking, what, do, what, what would be some good next steps? I would really ask the question, do I believe in uh, active learning theological environments? Do I even know what those are? Yeah. Because if you don't, I certainly wouldn't try to go out there and do, okay, I'm, I want to invite the church to 36 uh, 90-minute lectures this year. Uh, that would be something I would actively avoid. Um, if people want a lecture, they can YouTube the best voices on that topic right mm -hmm. now. You provide nothing. <laughs> you, you don't provide a differentiating factor if you're just like, I would like to talk to you for 90 minutes because unless you are unless you've got a wheelhouse, there's probably somebody out there that they can get for free online immediately that will do it better. So active learning environments uh, is key. So do you know how to structure active learning environments? If you don't, that's totally fine. There's a lot of great resources on structuring active learning environments. Find some of those hmm. uh, and read them and try to understand, do we have active learning environments in our church for theological education? Um, I, myself uh, and two other colleagues of mine, we run a cohort uh, that you can find out more at trainingthechurch.com where we help teach faith leaders and church leaders how to cultivate, create active learning environments for this purpose. So you can go to trainingthechurch.com. You can find that out. I would also endorse my friend JT English's book, Deep Discipleship, which is an appeal for this kind of thing in the life of a local church with some really simple steps. So mm -hmm. I didn't write that book. I don't get any kickbacks for it. But I would say if you're thinking about doing this and you're wondering, could I talk to somebody who's actually done it in the life of the church? Well, Deep Discipleship would be a good place to start. Mm -hmm. I think um, I would add two things. I think um, get creative, exercise your imagination. Um, maybe of maybe that's secondary. Maybe the first, maybe primary is um, imagine the telos. Like, why? What about this idea um, excites you or, or creates that kind of um, burning in your heart? Where are you hoping that your congregants would end up? Um, and then work backwards from there and say, well, how do we get there? Hmm. And um, I think it has required a fair amount of creativity and imagination because this wasn't something that we had necessarily seen before. And mm -hmm. um, it also required some flexibility. So we would try things and then we would realize this is not working. Um, <sighs> so we're going to have to flex around. And so um, it did really stretch some creative muscles and then also some vision casting as well, because once we imagined it and sort of creatively came up with some ideas in our mind of how we could get to those ends that we would hope for our congregations, um, we had to sell the people on it because not only was it not something that we had seen before, it wasn't something that they had seen before. And so um, it did require, um, I think, 
some of those skills and to, to think through um, how do I cast this vision for my people um, once I once I know what the vision is, I think. Um, and then adaptability and flexibility on, on the flip side to say, to constantly adjust um, depending mm. on, on how it's working. Yeah. Yeah. And on the visioneering side of things, Caroline, that that's a hundred percent right. Uh, I would say if you have not read, if you're interested in this and you have not read uh, by the renewal of your minds or by the renewing of your minds by Ellen Cherry, I mm. would highly, highly encourage you to read that book. Because if you're thinking, if you're trying to develop a vision, it's not going to be great at developing a strategy, but if you're trying to develop a vision for this, you feel like a desire and you think, I don't like, what, where do I go with this? And how do I kind of paint a beautiful picture? That book is lighter fluid for this in the life of a local church. So strongly encourage. You guys have great metaphors. Well, Kyle Worley and Caroline Smiley, thank you so much for your wisdom and your work on behalf of the church. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.